Hi, this is Ellie Fishman, and welcome back to part three. And this is the last part of our talk about uh, unusual conditions in the liver beyond tumors. And I left off last time saying that perhaps we should talk about sarcoid because sarcoid is one of those things that's a great mimicker. It's kind of like lymphoma and melanoma. It has a million different appearances, and often you don't think about it. If you look at sarcoid, it can involve the abdomen in many different ways. And in the liver, up to 90% plus of patients can have liver involvement, though the majority are going to be asymptomatic. And the most common finding is simply hepatomegaly. But lesions can be solitary and multiple would be more common. It's also common to see concurrent lesions in the spleen. Remember sarcoid, uh, if you can make the diagnosis, you can easily treat the patient. Good examples, you look at this case, you say, wow, this looks like a metastatic melanoma, lymphoma. Well, this was sarcoid. The patient was relatively asymptomatic. I always make the point, if you see a disease, another case, and it really looks like you have widespread tumor, patients will be sick, uh, will have weight loss, will have symptoms. When the patients are relatively asymptomatic, when they got a scan, maybe for trauma or some very minor reason, then you better be thinking about sarcoidosis. Sometimes they have the diagnosis, if you get a good history, but in most cases, my experience has been that there is no known diagnosis of sarcoid. Sometimes you look up in the chest and you see the nodes and you see the spleen and you see the liver and you see some periodic nodes and it's very easy to make the diagnosis of sarcoidosis. And here's just one more set of images from that patient. Patient also had an incidental pulmonary embolism. Now, I also want to comment on some of the things that we see that can be problematic in terms of simulating tumors. And they include some of the vascular pathologies from portal vein thrombosis to hepatic artery aneurysms to AP shunting and AVMs. So portal vein thrombosis is something we deal with on a daily basis. Thrombosis can be partial or can be complete. It can be chronic or it can be acute and is due to a wide range of conditions. In our condition, in our place of Hopkins, where we do so many pancreatic uh, cancer patients, that's probably the most common cause of involvement of the portal vein, whether it's occlusion or it's thrombus. But anything from acute pancreatitis to hepatoma are some of the possibilities. And there are many things in between from cirrhosis to cholangitis to hypercoagulability states to patients with trauma. If I'm looking at portal vein thrombosis, I typically, if I have arterial phase imaging, you may not see the thrombus right away, but you'll see perfusion changes. On the portal phase, you'll see the thrombus. Depending how extensive the thrombus is, you may see collaterals, you may see perfusion changes. If the portal vein is occluded, you're gonna see lots of collaterals, and if it's relatively long-standing, you'll see what we describe as cavernous transformation of the portal vein. Here's a nice example of a patient with cirrhosis with portal vein thrombosis, which is extending into the splenic vein. So one of the things we recognize is patients with portal vein thrombosis can have extension into the SMV or into the splenic vein, and it's very, very important that you look carefully, not just at the portal vein, but look for the full extent of thrombus. And here's just a nice example of what probably was a chronic thrombus. You can see faint calcification in both portal vein and splenic vein, and a little bit down to the SMV. Coronal views are very helpful for tracking the vessel. I find coronals and MIP particularly helpful in determining the extent of the involvement. 
And you can see it here as I go through a bunch of images. Another case, there you can see thrombus in the portal vein, but it's not occlusive. There are multiple collaterals noted in the hilum of the liver. And here it is again on the coronal view, where you see the thrombus, you see the collaterals, and also you see a hepatic mass. Very nice example of the cavernous transformation. If you didn't give IV contrast, if you weren't careful, you can confuse cavernous transformation with multiple rounded structures and suggest the patient has extensive adenopathy. So indeed, it's one of the pitfalls. Uh, MIP imaging, as you can see here, or volume rendering, are very, very helpful in making the diagnosis as well and defining the extent of disease. Now, one thing I hardly ever see, but I'll mention because we've seen a few cases, is portal vein aneurysms. We always think about aneurysms from arterial structures, not venous, but they can be venous. It can be associated with cirrhosis or portal hypertension. The most frequent site is the main portal vein, and typically we define aneurysm as being over 20 millimeters, where 15 millimeters is the top size of the portal vein. In my experience, when you have a portal vein aneurysm, you're not debating and measuring. Here's a good example. The patient has cirrhosis, small right lobe. Look at that large portal vein aneurysm, very nicely shown. We did publish an article about this a couple years back. Portal vein aneurysm is defined as a focal dilatation of the portal venous system, a dilatation which presents with a number of different shapes, morphologies, um, with fusiform probably being the most common. We also noted that although portal vein aneurysms are the most common of the visceral venous aneurysms, they're quite rare and account for only 3% of venous aneurysms. So we've probably seen about a half a dozen cases. When you ask what's the importance of these, I think sometimes the importance is not mistaking it for another pathology. Occasionally they can present with symptoms of abdominal pain and other complications including thrombosis, portal hypertension, or rupture. So occasionally you will need to operate on these patients, but that's fairly infrequent. Again, most patients tend to be asymptomatic but as you can see from this quote, other patients will indeed be symptomatic. When I think about aneurysms of the mesenteric vessels, I'm typically thinking about arterial aneurysms, of course. It's uncommon, but we are seeing it more frequently now with better scanning. Most common would be the splenic artery and hepatic artery being the second most common. Aneurysm rupture is associated with high morbidity and high mortality. We've written some articles on this subject, mentioning, of course, that they're being diagnosed more frequently with faster scanning and thinner sections. It's important to recognize that these aneurysms can be diagnosed accurately, but it's important because they carry a high morbidity and mortality rate, even in asymptomatic patients. Often something will need to be done, whether we're talking about resection or we're talking about embolization. I mentioned a few moments ago some of the magic numbers, splenic artery 60% and hepatic artery 20%. GDA aneurysms are at the bottom of the list 1.5%, but if you told me a patient was post-Whipple's procedure and was bleeding, I would tell you it's a GDA aneurysm or pseudoaneurysm as the most likely thing. So again, certain conditions will change those numbers. Sometimes patients will have multiple aneurysms, and here's a good example of hepatic artery aneurysms that are multiple. We can see this at times with vasculitis, 
Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is one of the good causes of this. And in fact, this patient has Ehlers-Danlos syndrome with multiple hepatic artery aneurysms. We've seen this also with vasculitis. And very, very nice example. In this case, you also see a dilated SMA, which goes along with the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And here's just a couple more 3D images with volume rendering and with MIP showing you the findings. We can also see hepatic AVMs within the liver. Uh, and this is a very impressive case of multiple vascular structures in the liver. At first glance, you're trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Well, this patient has hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasias, also knows Rendu uh, Osler Weber disease. It's a rare disease, and typically we think about pulmonary AV malformations. We constantly are studying the lungs, but you can see them in other areas, including skin, GI tract, and brain. Uh, Osler Weber Rendu disease is also known to be autosomal dominant with a variable penetrance. And again, the definitive diagnosis requires three findings, recurrent spontaneous epitaxis, mucocutaneous telangiectasias, visceral AVMs, or evidence of autosomal dominant inheritance. I mentioned there are four areas of key involvement. Again, the one we think about is the lung. Uh, most common, often multiple. Most patients are asymptomatic, but some become symptomatic particularly with larger pulmonary AVMs or multiple. Patients can be cyanotic, polycythemia, hemoptysis can occur, and even spontaneous pneumothorax. We don't think about the abdomen quite as much in HHT disease, but you should. If you look carefully, liver involvement up to 30% of cases, though again, the majority of patients are asymptomatic, but others can present with high output failure, portal hypertension, or even biliary cystic disease. Again, the vessels often seem tangled. It looks like multiple areas of involvement. It's important to recognize that this is typically arterial phase. You see the abnormalities, venous phase, things are isodense. HHT, multi-organ vascular dysplasia, as we mentioned. And this article by Jess Kala makes the point that virtually every body system can be affected. And this article by Lynn makes the point that multiplanar and volume rendering are particularly helpful. Couple examples, here's the lungs in a patient with multiple PAVMs in HHT disease. And here's that same patient looking at the liver. And here it is, a few more views. Very impressive. As I mentioned, the MIPS may help show it better, these little tiny vascular malformations in the liver and it's very extensive. Go 30 seconds later in venous phase, and you're not gonna see any of these lesions, but look how extensive they are. And here's that same patient 30 seconds later, where you would read the liver as normal. And I've never seen it quite as impressive as in patients with HHT disease. And here's one more example, showing you the MIP arterial with the venous phase. Just incredibly impressive how those tortuous vessels, those small vascular abnormalities, all quickly become isodense. Now, several other things we can see in the liver. We can see AV shunts. This can be due to trauma, can be due to biopsy. Um, sometimes it's just that uh, we see them. Again, you don't wanna confuse this with a tumor. You don't wanna confuse this with some hepatoma or the vascular tumor with feeding and draining vessels. 
Very nice example of a vascular malformation. Another thing we can see, uh, you see this enhancing lesion in the liver and you say, what is it? You can give all sorts of possibilities, but the location is critical. When you look at the 3D reconstructions, you can see the collateral vessels in the patient's abdominal wall. You can see that one of those collaterals, which comes down and inter comes off a branch of the internal mammary, is feeding the lesion. And that's the classic hot spot in the liver when you have SVC occlusion. Patients get collaterals going through the internal mammaries, for example. This drains to the diaphragm and then gives you that hot spot in the liver. Again, the key is not to confuse it with a tumor. If you scan the chest and abdomen, it would be easy because you see the SVC issues, but perhaps you're only scanning the abdomen and you're perplexed by seeing this lesion. It always looks the same. Another beautiful example of that hot spot, right by the falciform ligament, beautiful drainage, very, very nicely shown. And here's one more example where you see the collaterals and the subcutaneous tissues, the marked vascularity at that hot spot. And once in a while, you even can see a hot spot in the posterior right lobe of the liver, though that's fairly, fairly uncommon. And here's just a blush through a vascular lesion, nicely shown in the dome of the liver. Now, when you look at this case and the other cases, they kind of look somewhat similar. Um, you kind of look and say, could this be a hemangioma? There's perfusion changes, what's going on? Good example of where MIP imaging is very helpful. You can see the feeding artery and the draining vein, AV malformation. So again, these vascular lesions can be confusing. They can be undercalled or overcalled. But I think most importantly at times is they're misdiagnosed and called malignancy or metastatic disease. One last thing I'll mention is iron deposition, hemochromatosis. We spoke at the start of this talk about fatty infiltration and the liver being of low density. We talk about high density things, hemochromatosis, hemosiderosis. Uh, on CT, the liver is denser than the spleen and muscle by at least 30 or 40 Hounsfield units. You can get a similar appearance with ME odorone toxicity or glycogen storage disease. On MR, there's a low signal on T1 and T2 with the liver and spleen lower in T1 signal compared to muscle. And here's just a nice example, non-contrast CT. Look how dense the liver is. Now, what can fool you? Well, if you had contrast yesterday and contrast was in the RE cells, the liver could look dense, but usually you would see something in the kidneys. Here, there's nothing in the kidneys. There's no contrast, very dense liver. You see how the vascular structures stand out. Now, there's some work also being done looking at these patients with dual energy to define and quantify the amount of hepatic iron present, and that's something that is being done. It's of some interest. Dual energy can be used for diagnosing clinically important hepatic iron accumulation, demonstrating sensitivity of 80% and specificity of 90%. So it is doable, there's work being done but we'll see how it pans out uh, long-term. Uh, if a CT is indicated, dual uh, CT, dual energy CT can be used for diagnosing clinically important hepatic iron accumulation, okay? So again, it could have very important uh, practice indications for us as we go forward in the future. In fact, dual energy, the liver has great potential. We've not really used that potential, but I think it's something that you will see coming along. Concluding then, I've looked at a number of things that you could fit on the parenchymal liver disease. 
or you can fit in the non-malignant category. We spoke about some of the pitfalls, some of the important things to remember. Uh, we looked at a range of things from both Chiari to abscess to infarct to fatty infiltration, and hopefully you've picked up some good pointers. And if you have any questions, please let me know. And with that, I thank you for your attention. And that's the end of part three of three parts. See you next time.